In the movie City Slickers back in the 80s, the character Mitch, played by Billy Crystal, is uh, suffering from some marital troubles and some other troubles at home. So he heads out west to a dude ranch to kind of find himself or whatever. And as he's out there, he is on a ride with uh, Curly, one of the main ranch hands. And Mitch happens to ask Curly, he says, man, I'm, I'm struggling. What is, what is the purpose? What is the meaning in life? And Curly responds. He looks at him and he says, it's all about the one thing. So Mitch says, great. What is it? What is that one thing? I need it. So Curly says, it's all for you to find out what that one thing is. And so the movie goes on, and each of the characters kind of find their one thing. And it's a, a relativistic message, kind of that fit the times then and, and fits the times now as well. But unfortunately, Billy Crystal and Mitch, that character, had they had the, at their hand the writings of J.C. Ryle, they could have, in a sense, found the answer to that question of what's the meaning of life and what's the one thing that matters. Because J.C. Ryle, to paraphrase him, basically says this. He says, A zealous man for the Lord is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough that he's earnest, uncompromised, or fervent in spirit. He sees one thing. He cares about one thing. He lives for one thing. He's swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or dies, whether he's uh, thought wise or foolish, whether he has wealth or he's poor, none of that matters to the zealous man for the Lord. He cares nothing for that. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God. And if he's consumed in that, that is fine with him. He feels that he is like a lamp made to burn for the Lord. And if he burns up completely, he has yet done what God has called him to do and to be. Such a one will always find a sphere for that zeal. If he cannot preach and work and give money, then he will cry and sigh and pray. If he cannot fight with Joshua in the valley, then he will be with Moses praying on the hillside. If he is cut off from the work himself, then he will not give God rest until God raises him up in another place that he can serve and until the work is done. That is what is meant by the one thing, by zeal for the Lord. And our passage this morning fits with that picture of one who is zealous for the Lord. We have Nehemiah here, who we've seen in the 13 chapters, and even in this passage here, there may be parts where you kind of scratch your head and think, hmm, would I have done that? <laughs> but no doubt we can say that he was one who was zealous for the Lord. No doubt about that. And as we come into the passage, we're going to see him zealous, seeking and serving the Lord in a very significant way. As a quick reminder, back in chapter 10, in verse 30, these Jews that he's talking to here had made a covenant oath vow that they would not intermarry with these pagan nations. And for the Israelites, that was very serious. 
It was not a casual promise. The vows that they made were to be taken very seriously, often at pain of death. And yet these have fallen away from their vow that they have taken here. So Nehemiah is coming before them uh, in a sense with um, bringing a covenant curse on them that we're going to see as we come. So as you look at the, um, the passage, and we'll be walking through it, and you have notes in your bulletin as well if you want to use those. Nehemiah comes before them in verse 23. After having been away from Jerusalem for maybe 25 years or so, he had gone back to serve the king. He comes here to meet with the people. When it says, in those days I also saw the Jews... It's not the kind of thing where it's just I casually bumped into them in the market, marketplace where, you know, he's introducing himself. I'm, I'm uh, uh, Nehemiah. Well, hi, I'm Judah the Jew. And would you like to meet, meet my wife, uh, Philistine Arena, the Philistine? Didn't go that. It wasn't that way. Sorry, I don't know any other Philistine names. But so what had happened was he was aware of these marriages, So he's going specifically to visit these people. They were likely um, in the south and west part of the Israelite country, away from Jerusalem. He had heard of these marriages. So he goes there to see them on an intentional visit. Maybe it's kind of like when you have an elder who comes to visit your family. Our elders do shepherding visits where they're intentionally going to visit and meet with a family. Okay. Now, after you hear what he did to them, uh, you might not want the elders to come and visit, but we don't, we don't yank your hair out. We cut it out. We're a little more gentle for each, each sin. No. But, so there's a point there of why he's going to visit them. And what was the big deal? Who was Ashdod? Ashdod is likely associated with the Philistines. And then the uh, Ammonites and Moabites, they were distant relatives of the Hebrews. They spoke a similar dialect, but they had become enemies because of the wrongs that they had done to the Hebrew nation. So the point is here, the important thing is these people were no longer speaking the Hebrew language. When an Israelite man would marry a Philistine woman, What would likely be the case, as it is now, the mother at home would have a predominant uh, part in the raising of the children and teaching them their language, their reading, their writing. And here we have a Philistine mother who's going to teach them not Hebrew. So in one generation, you had the people losing their zeal for God's word. The people had become... um, careless and complacent in their marriages, and it had a direct influence on the next generation. And there was a loss of a zeal for God's holy word. And you also had an influence raising the children where it's not about uh, following uh, God's law, God's uh, areas of morality, or anything like that. Not a godly Christian influence. These, these Israelites were not marrying these other nations uh, for missionary uh, marriages by any means. It was all wrong. Now, an important point, and Dean made this last week as well. I want to make sure it's clear. This is not against interracial marriages by any means. It is not saying anything wrong about interracial marriages. What this is saying is about a Christian um, 
who's called to worship only the one true God, yoking themselves together, being married with somebody whose sole purpose in life is to worship anything but the one true God. And that is why Nehemiah is passionate and zealous about this should not be the case. So what did uh, zealous Nehemiah do? That's why the title of the sermon is Why It's Best to Be Bald. He calls out, in a sense, a covenant curse on them. He, he uh, pulls out their hair to let them know this is absolutely not something that should be taking place. And if we think um, onward into the New Testament, we can see Nehemiah is not the only one zealous in this way. Jesus, in the marketplace, comes with uh, a whip on the money changers. Paul is very harsh uh, in the way he condemns the Judaizers. And ultimately, God will be harsh, in a sense, with those who have turned their back on him, rejected him, where they are everlastingly separated from him. So it's not a one-time thing that there is a, a time and a place for harsh uh, judgment against something that is drastically wrong. So this uh, action that Nehemiah had fit for that culture. Um, it may not fit as well in our diverse and non-judgmental culture, culture here. We can admit that, but it did fit there. A better question for us would actually be to consider and apply would be this kind of thing. Those Jews had become careless and complacent in their marriages and integration with this pagan society. And hence the faith, or the, yeah, their faith and a zeal for God's word to their children was not being passed along. So we can ask ourselves as parents, biological parents, spiritual parents of those that, ones that you care for. What are we putting in place around us to intentionally pass on the faith to our children? How are we making sure that they will take on the fight, not retreat and withdraw, but to engage and win the culture for Christ? That's a good thing for us to consider as we see uh, the sin that was taking place as they weren't passing along the truths of the gospel of the full counsel of God to these people. So what does Nehemiah require of them? Cease from this pra practice. He doesn't say get a divorce now that they were married. He doesn't say get a divorce. He says cease from this practice. No longer gives your daughters or your sons uh, in these marriages. And that's what Blair read in Deuteronomy 7. Calling them back to that law. Hold to God's law. And if we think about the setting there, the context of what's going on here, about not marrying uh, with the other peoples. It wasn't quite like uh, everybody in the pagan nations were just going around, oh, it's obvious they're worshiping idols right here, or having a sign that says, me, Philistine, you, Jew. It wasn't that obvious because of what had happened. There was a lot of intermixing, some synthesis of the different peoples, especially over on the borders. So it might not be that obvious whether this person is an idol worshiper or that kind of thing. And so maybe it would actually take some time to determine whether this person is a pagan or a worshiper of God or not. The point of the law was God had called his people to be holy and set apart and to walk with him, not to be part of those pagan nations. So it, but it might take time 
Ask some questions. Find out. Do you worship the one true God? What is it that you live for? What is it that you're zealous for? Everybody is zealous for something. Even the couch potato is zealous for something. What's the next game I'm going to watch or whatever? We're all zealous uh, for something. And another thing that we want to consider as, as, as we're determining, you know, would, should I do this or that? Um, here's, here's something to consider. We often judge whether we watch something, read something, uh, date somebody by, oh, there's nothing bad about it. I can watch this movie because there's nothing bad about it. Or I can date this person or whatever because I don't know anything bad about them. But since when is that a sufficient criteria in God's word for whether I go and do something? God's word says, whatever is noble, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things, do such things. We need to ask ourselves, what is good about what I'm about to do or the person that I'm about to see? How can someone already, how could we be dating someone as a, as a Christian if we don't even know if that other person is a Christian? We've got to simply ask them questions and find out where their heart lies, what they're passionate about, what they're zealous about. So a challenge there for those who may uh, be single. So let's look in the text now to see what Nehemiah does next. He builds on the point about not marrying a pagan. He's, he's brought us back to the law. Now he's going to bring us to a second example using history. Okay, History looking at a second example of bad marriage with Solomon. Solomon being the third king of Israel, uh, the wisest man to ever live. But what happened with Solomon? Listen to what happens in, in 1 Kings 11. A very sad passage. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So it's sad and it's scary. And here's one of the the things that really stands out uh, to me in this. If you look in verse 26, the way that Nehemiah describes Solomon, he calls him, it says, and he was beloved by his God. Some of you may have a cross-reference in your Bible there. If you go back and look at 2 Samuel, the name given, the nickname, even a pet name almost, that God had given Solomon was Jedidiah, beloved by his God. So if the wisest man, one who is beloved by his God, can fall in this way and be so ultimately foolish in this way, then we must be wary as well. And if we were to ask Solomon, what happened? What happened to lead you astray? We could ask him a further question. Solomon, which comes first? Is it the worship of the false gods, the idols? Or is it the chasing after 
an ungodly partner. Solomon would say it's the latter. And we saw that in that passage. There is the pursuit of the mate, the girlfriend, the boyfriend, whatever, who doesn't know, the, who doesn't love the Lord. And then your heart becomes callous to the things of God. And you basically lose your zeal for wisdom as well. As we unfortunately even saw with Solomon, the wisest man, ends up doing something so foolish in the chasing of those many ungodly women. So if, I'll, if Solomon can, we can as well make that awful mistake and sin. So youth, if you want someone to turn your heart from God, Nehemiah said that you could surely do it by pursuing a non-Christian. Now I realize that some of you are, are probably exceptions to that uh, rule. You may be one who married a non-Christian, and by God's grace, that person has become a Christian. Or you may be one where you weren't a Christian and your husband or wife took you uh, as, a, as a spouse. And by God's grace, you have been saved. Praise the Lord for that. Be humble and be thankful for that. The point here is still the warning that Nehemiah gives us. We don't want to play with fire. For those who are unmarried, it is wise to make the right choice and those we choose as spouses. It's hard enough for someone who is infatuated with a godly woman or a godly man to stay on track. You get so interested in their hobbies, their interests, and so forth, uh, wanting to know them, wanting to win them over. Even a Christian can get turned away often when that takes place, when that person sweeps you off your feet. Two other uh, challenging applications that I saw just this week, Ed Welch points out these, these things, um, and these are challenges to married couples. He says, uh, why is it so often that we take our sexual sins, so maybe somebody's uh, battling against pornography or something like that, why is it so often that we take our sexual sins and we just seek to postpone them rather than defeat them? Here again, we're seeing a loss of zeal for wisdom and a pursuit of the world because we're becoming callous to God. It's not just about postponing those sins and letting them arise again. And another question he asks is he says, why do we set up the boundaries that we have in our marriage? And this was one that really challenged me as well. For the sake of my wife, for Donna, there are things that I won't look at, won't uh, watch, won't go places, whatever. I'm wary of those things. But as I'm honest about it, often the reason is because I don't want to mess up my marriage. I don't want to hurt her. That sounds good. But ultimately, our calling is for the love of Christ. And that's what 2 Corinthians says, for the love of Christ controls us. Those boundaries that we have in place should ultimately be because I love the Lord. He saved me. That's why I have those boundaries in place. Those other things that I mentioned are good, but they should really be secondary to what God calls us to. So after the second example with Solomon of the bad marriage there, we move to a third example. In verse 28, where it mentions one of the sons of Jehoiada. Now, Jehoiada was son of Eliashib. And Eliashib, Dean mentioned last week, Eliashib had let 
Tobiah, sorry, all these names. Eliashib was the high priest. He had let Tobiah, a pagan, have an inner place basically in the temple, letting the the, uh, fox into the hen house. Now, his grandson, Eliashib's grandson, intermarries with another pagan, Sanballat. Why is that so significant? You now have the potential high priest many years down the line who is intermarried in with a pagan nation. Uh, Complete sacrilege there, like grandfather, like grandson. Elisha had let in Tobiah, his grandson lets in Sanballat. So we see this completely cowardly move of making alliances with pagan nations, enemy nations, in order to compromise and arrive at benefits for themselves. Whether those were material or political, don't know for sure. But in the end, they were cowardly, not depending on the Lord, ultimately, and they compromised. They had lost their zeal for worship. The ones, the priests, who were as as much as anybody to call the people into worship of the one true God, they were losing their zeal for worship. Nehemiah responds quickly, decisively, sends the man away. And rightfully so. Now, interesting point with the man that he sent away. Out, uh, historians outside the Bible connect this man with one who went to Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Okay, why does that matter? You've now got these two temples, Mount Gerizim uh, in Samaria and the one here in Jerusalem. And you might think forward to John 4 where Jesus comes, visits with the woman at the well, and has to set that situation straight about where does it matter where we worship and that kind of thing. So the people at this point are hope, were likely seeing their need for a high priest, priest who would really bring them into worship of the one true God. They were seeing the many uh, failures of the priests that were before them. So... As, as, um, as Nehemiah sends him away, in one sense, it's as if we've hit the high point of the passage. Nehemiah has corrected a number of things, set many things straight. He has cleaned up many things and addressed the issues. He's run these bad guys out of town, and he's made others promise not to let in any other bad guys. So... We want, to, we want to cheer and say, yay, we're done, right? No. For some reason, the passage continues. And it, it seems somewhat anticlimactic as we look at what goes on from here. It says, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. And it talks about the duties of the priest and the Levite and the wood and the first fruits. So what, why the mention of that? It would almost be like going on a mission trip and you come back and you say, look at, let me tell you about the the many people that we led to Christ and our medical missions team. They helped to cure hundreds of people and we built two churches from the ground up. And oh yeah, we we fed, we did some lunches at the orphanages and we made sure that the uh, pastors had what they needed to give communion. In one sense, it seems like little minor details. But then when we realize 
that someone is, who is zealous for the Lord is zealous about the big things and what might appear to be little things because they matter to God. And so therefore, these things matter to Nehemiah that what the priest needed, that they be set um, and taken care of as well. So Nehemiah addresses those also. And then we move to the last phrase of the book. Remember me, O my God, for good. So what is that? Nehemiah is obviously longing for something. Remember me. Remember me for good. So he's longing for something. He's longing for a reward. And one of the greatest longings of our heart is for life and ultimately eternal life with God. It's not saying by any means that, look at me, I earned this. Give me eternal life. Give me life with you because I earned it because of the good things I did. Or I earned it because I was zealous and sincere. No, we're absolutely right to be biblical and emphasize salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the way we are saved without a doubt. In addition, though, Scripture does talk about rewards and blessings here on earth and in heaven. Maybe we see the blessings and the rewards here. Some people do. Not talking about a health and wealth gospel. Not talking about that. But some sort of blessing and reward here. Maybe it's not until heaven. Okay? There are rewards even in heaven for the believers. Scripture Uh, points that out. It's not my intention to go into a whole theology of that here in this sermon, but simply to be faithful to, to mention that based on this text touches on it. Even those rewards in heaven, though, we see a great picture where uh, in Revelation four crowns are cast before the throne, showing that even the rewards we are given, ultimately, God, it's from you, through you, to you. You have given me the grace to do whatever good that I may do here. So we see Nehemiah longing for that greater reward, and then there's silence. What do I mean by the silence? Nehemiah is chronologically the end of the Old Testament, even though it's not, you know, as you look in your Old Testament, there are more books to come. Those prophets and so forth, there many of them are speaking. At the same time, some before uh, uh, Nehemiah. But chronologically, this is the end of the Old Testament. So it wraps up in the 400s B.C. And then there's 400 years of silence as far as Scripture goes until we look into the Gospels. We see in Matthew 1.21, they will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, one that ultimately Nehemiah was longing for, in a sense. There's his answer, Jesus, to come in Matthew 1. We see that. So with Nehemiah, we see a solid picture of one who indeed was a model of zeal for the Lord. But there's a perfect picture of that zeal in Christ. The one who's zealous as a perfect high priest, who didn't fail as these high priests did in so many ways, he lays down his life for those people. 
And then there's one other picture that's pretty clear in the passage that we don't want to miss. And that's the picture of the faithfulness in marriage that points to Christ as well. And many of you might be thinking, in a sense, you know, Daryl, you've talked some about marriage in this, and the passage says much about it. And some of that fit for me. I got married young, followed the flesh, whatever. I married somebody I shouldn't have married. Maybe I ended in divorce, maybe not. But, you know, I'm feeling like this isn't right because I'm a Christian and, and they're not. The good news is this. Even if you, you realize, oh, I made a bad decision, Nehemiah didn't tell those people to get, uh, to get divorced. Okay? He didn't call them to that. All right? And so for us as well, there is hope, absolutely, for the divorced person that God can redeem the years to come. Absolutely, he's a God of grace. And for those who are in a marriage where it may be in a lot of trouble, and you may be the believer, then this passage speaks to you. That you can say, I am called to be zealous. I am called to be zealous for my marriage. To, to burn, as, as uh, J.C. Ryle said, as a lamp for Christ. Hopefully to win that person to Christ. By showing them a faithful love as Christ continues to love me. As Christ has been faithful to me to never leave me aside once we have been joined. He is faithful even when I am not. Let us pray. Father, a challenging passage, but a very, very good one. Because we see, one, a model that we can follow in so many ways. But more importantly than that, the Bible is not just a book of characters that we can emulate here and there. It is a cohesive picture and painting that points towards you, Lord Jesus, as the ultimate end, as the ultimate reward that we see you as the one we long for. You as our perfect high priest who has given his life, who has laid it down for us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And the picture of one who is faithful till the end, who will carry his bride, the church, forward and each of his people individually as well. In your name we pray. Amen.